Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to welcome Jamie, CEO and founder of Creator Fund, Europe's leading university student-focused fund. Jamie launched the fund in 2019 and has since grown its presence to more than 25 UK universities. The inspiration for the model came from his time at Stanford, where he was an investor at Dorm Room Fund. Jamie is a true thought leader in the space and is leading the charge, pioneering a new generation of funds that we expect to see from him in the future. Buckle up, because Jamie is going places fast. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Jamie, welcome to the European VC. It's super cool to have you here with us today. How's everything? Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic to be here. Before we start, I always like to start in the same way. It's super fun to hear how different people got into venture. So tell us, how the hell did you get into this wonderful world of venture capital? And how did that lead you to starting Creator Fund? Yeah, so I spent a long time in my 20s running election campaigns around the world. So I was kind of parachuted into countries like Croatia or Cambodia, Slovenia, and like working for the government or the opposition to run campaigns. So pretty different uh, life from VC. A big part of that was the kind of building team. So kind of going from zero to scaling a campaign team up to 40 or 50 in a short period of time. Yeah. But then, you know, wanted to kind of think about what came next. I went to go and do an MBA at Stanford. While I was there, moved into venture, but specifically was involved with something there called Dorm Room Fund, which pioneered the model of you know, using universities to be incubators, the next generation of big technology companies. Obviously in the US, that's everything from Facebook to Snapchat to DoorDash, all came out of universities in the US. Saw how impactful those funds were in, in America. Didn't see anyone doing that in Europe. And so launched Creator Fund to bring that model to Europe. I've got one question. I need to break in already and ruin everything about that we've planned. But you just mentioned some great companies coming out of the US Storm Room Funds. We have not seen that just yet in Europe. Why do you think that we're struggling with the model in Europe compared to the US? So we have, right? So in, in Europe, Klarna, obviously maybe that was a slightly better case study uh, a few months ago, but Klarna, <laughs> you know, in the UK, Gymshark, Darktrace, Sweden, Voy. You know, there, there are generations of unicorns that have been started um, yeah. at European universities. I don't think we have the same level as America. No. And that's partly because I don't think we've had this history of VC funds like Creator Fund or like Dorm Fund in the US, specifically making sure that the smartest university minds have access to the right capital, but also the right talent and strategic support early on in their journey. So it's made a huge difference in America. We're starting to see that track record in Europe and Creator Fund is trying to be a catalyst so we see more of it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts around what works and what doesn't, because there's a lot of them out there. And as in everything in life, some of them are great, some of them are shit. <laughs> and so I'd love to hear your thoughts around, you know, what works and what doesn't in Europe specifically. So one word that we ban at Creator Fund, and I'm really pretty bearish on it in a word in VC in general, is the word scout. And so I think like a lot of VC funds, 
essentially try and say, okay, well, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, there's interesting stuff happening there. Let's put a scout on the ground. And that scout's just going to report back to us on a you know, monthly or six monthly, whatever it basis, and tell us what they're seeing on campus. That really doesn't work, right? Because essentially you're taking these really smart people and you're not incentivizing them, you're not motivating them, you're not giving them support, and you're just kind of asking them to report back to you with deal flow. The whole model of creative fund, and it's like learning from what's worked well in America and, and, and taking the best bits of that is, no, what we're going to do is we're going to find the smartest PhD minds across this country. We're going to find people that could be working alongside their PhD for DeepMind or for you know top biotech companies or whatever it is. We're going to share the carry of our fund with them. We're going to treat them like you know partners of this fund, give them lots of responsibility, train them, give them mentors in industry, and they're going to be our leaders on the ground across these university campuses finding deals really early. And that for us is kind of the biggest difference of when this works and doesn't work. Do you have a massively kind of respected, motivated, empowered group of, of PhD leads on the ground? And honestly, what we found is a lot of startups take money from creator fund over other funds because they want to work with our PhDs. They want to work with people that actually understand what they're doing, understand what they're yeah. building, you know, are excited about the spaces they are. I think that's the biggest difference of where this model works and doesn't work. So there you're talking about incentives and alignment. But I'm also curious, you know, you started your track in this space in the US with Dorm Room, and now you're doing it in Europe. Sure. And I guess there's also big differences there. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest difference between America and Europe is the profile of students starting a business. So America's got this pretty unique culture of undergraduates starting very big technology businesses. So, you know, you think about Evan Spiegel, you think about Mark Zuckerberg, These are like 19-year-old, 20-year-old guys in their dorm room starting, you know, some of the most successful technology companies in the world. We don't see that in Europe, less so in the UK. There isn't the same kind of quantity of undergraduates dreaming of starting businesses like you see in America. I think there's a few things driving that cultural shift. I think one of them is America is very good at kind of multidisciplinary degrees, e.g. if you're reading computer science, you're also interacting with people from MBA programs, you're also interacting with people from mass programs and life science, and there's that kind of collision that brings together really good founding teams. They've also got an extra year of degree. And they also, I think, especially in Europe, sometimes we kind of really emphasize the prestige of reading something like history or classics, which is just less conducive to starting big technology companies while you're at university. What we see in Europe, though, is this generation of PhD founders, right? I think, you know, in Europe, the world's best and brightest come to this continent to do technical PhDs at a university like ETH in Zurich or TUM in Munich or Cambridge. They're real experts in their field. And increasingly now in Europe, those people are saying, okay, I want to start a business off the back of that. So the biggest difference for us in terms of who we're backing and what we're seeing in, in Europe, it skews older, it skews more PhD. In America, when I was at Dormant Fund, there's a lot more undergraduates and MBAs starting companies. How do you see things developing in Europe though? Because I actually helped set up the university incubator at the university I came out of in Denmark. And I would say for sure, we are seeing a wave of change in the mindset of youth. And thus, I would say we're coming, if not close, but at least closer to the US mindset. But what are you seeing across Europe? Because mine is a Danish experience, right? We're definitely seeing that change. I mean, I think that the biggest shift that's happening and needs to happen more is like, what's prestigious? Like what's desirable? Like when you graduate top tier European university, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 
you know, the, the desirable thing was to go to McKinsey or join a top law firm. That's changing. I still think it's going to change more, right? I still think it would be a, you'd be a slight outlier among top performers to go and start something immediately out of university. And, and like, that's not as much of an outlier as it would have been 10 years ago, but it, it's still, I think, not as uniform as, as what Americans would do coming out of like Stanford or Harvard. And I think we've got to shift that even more. And I think the biggest way that you shift that is by seeing examples of people two, three years ahead of you that's done that, made a success of that, and you want to follow in their footsteps. And those are kind of positive role models across the ecosystem here. And we're trying to provide that. Can I ask you a question now? So I, yeah, yeah. I hold a controversial view on university incubators <laughs> that I, will get me in trouble many places uh, <laughs> because I say that an incubator that doesn't have its own fund, either running it or very closely connected to it, is a shitty incubator. Did your, your one in Denmark have a fund? Or you it did not. It did not. Okay. And I, I was very adamant in saying that until we have that, we will not be playing the big leagues. Self-aware. Yeah. I'd love to hear your take on that. I would say that there is a trend in universities to now raise their own pre-seed and seed funds. So Cambridge has got their own pre-seed and seed fund. Edinburgh University has got their own pre-seed and seed fund. Some of the Swedish universities have their own pre-seed. HSA in Paris has it. It's a really good trend. I don't have your incubator experience, but I think I, my challenge with incubators is where it's essentially like you go along, you do an eight week course on like starting a company and everyone knows you're not going to start the company at the end of it. Yeah. You're going to go and take some cushy job. Yeah. And it's like also, I think especially like some of these sometimes some students like they're so good at presenting passion and presenting, you know, beautiful looking deck with like great yeah. full bleed images on the slides and then at the end of it, they go and join, you know, the safe job. And that, that is a frustrating experience. We've got to be really discerning it. You know, yeah. I think the number one thing we're looking at creative fund is like conviction. Are you really going to do this? And I think the trend away from just like incubators that are essentially just educational to incubators that have got money and, you know, potentially universities writing your first 20, 30K check into the startup. It's a really positive trend. Yeah. And then, you know, I think also the other thing that universities are uniquely able to do is connect you into industry, right? Like the Swedes are very good at this. Yeah. You know, Volkswagen puts a lot of money into the university in Gothenburg. And then if you match that with an incubator as well, and maybe that incubator is targeted towards the car industry, you've got yeah. that trifecta of like talent, capital, and links into industry. Yeah. I think that's where it's the opposite of shitty. Yeah. yeah. Now, and it's super funny to see in that every university incubator has this inherent issue of deciding whether are we educating the masses and getting entrepreneurship into every single student is that what we're here for or are we here to try and create the next facebook and doordash and so on exactly and the question is what's the kpi like so many of these incubators are just like people that come in or startups launch it should all be yeah. like how many of these startups funded around afterwards how many of these are still around two three years yeah. later and it's just doing a massive disservice to have kind of like just educational programs that then don't lead to any actual startup creation at the end of it. I completely agree. We had a massive uh, KPI discussion back when I was there. So yes, that is what drives an incubator at a university, right? So I think my other big like thing as well that I would suggest to incubators is like, I think there's a mistake where you want to be all things to all people, right? So taking an example of, you know, let's say you're going to launch an incubator in Manchester, which is a city in the, in the north of England. Manchester's got real regional strengths in things like media. It's a big media hub. And then there's a legacy of kind of like manufacturing in that region of the country. Like the incubator there should target 
those sectors or like, you know, graphene is, is, is produced in Manchester, incubator focused on graphene. I think sometimes these incubators get it wrong because they're kind of like, they'll back a fintech company, they'll back a sports company, they'll back a deep tech company. It's like any student can pop up and you'll get support there. But actually these incubators, I think when you differentiate and you position the program and the university and the support you get around the area where that university has a real competitive advantage, that's how you can create a really interesting proposition. So Jamie, before I kick it back to Andreas to proceed, I think it would be cool to, to hear your take on this, which is we're going to talk about creative fund in detail. We're going to talk about the scaling of the creative fund, super exciting topics, I, I believe at least. And the question I have for you, if I'm a GP or an LP listening in, and I'm still unsure if I'm going to listen to the rest of the episode, why should I stay tuned in? I like that. <laughs> Nobody else is doing what we're doing. I mean, I think right now in Europe and VC, there are a lot of like generalist funds that look quite similar to others. There is no other VC fund of our scale. We're now a $25 million fund. We are across 28 universities that has our model of being driven with the USP of PhDs on the ground. And there's no one else really catering for the type of founders that we're backing, which is what happens if you find the smartest student in the world in this space and give them their first check to build a business. I think our approach and our focus is really unlike anything else happening in the ecosystem and very different from just a general VC fund. With that, the obvious question, Jamie, is tell us, what is your thesis? What is your strategy? What is the Creative Fund about? So our thesis is that Europe has many of the best academic institutions anywhere in the world that have been pioneering breakthroughs since the 13th century. And if you want to find the next generation of like big frontier type breakthroughs, the best place to look is inside university laboratories and university classrooms. And if you can get the people pioneering in biotech, you know, the leaders in AI, the, the best roboticists, if you can get the people in those universities starting companies, rather than potentially what they've been pushed towards in the past, which is publishing or going into academia, we've got this engine, this incubator, this ability to really create great technology businesses out of that expertise, out of that talent, out of that history of innovation. That's And Creative Fund exists to help those founders do it. What about strategy, Jamie? So how early are you going? How many companies are you backing? Give us some insights there. So our job is to have somebody on our team. So we've got a team of 38 people as close to exciting innovation as possible. So we kind of, our aim is to have somebody embedded in every classroom, every laboratory where exciting things are happening. And so we're trying to find, you know, this high innovation company is very early. And so we will write a first check of up to about £600,000. So it's between £100,000 and £600,000. Typically, we're investing in rounds between about half a million and three million, but our sweet spot is probably half a million and a million. So first check-in, typically leading that pre-seed round, and we'll invest as soon as the founding team have the conviction that this is what they want to spend the rest of their lives building. So the technology can be early, the idea can be early, but we're looking for maximum conviction that these founders have burnt their ships and this is what they're going to do. And create a fund is then your partner to take this the whole way once you've made that commitment yourself. Just to clarify, Jamie, in terms of geo as of today, what is the coverage? Geo as of today, we are across 25 universities in the UK. We have a small pilot team in Stockholm. And in October, we're launching in the Dhaka region as well. You used a well-chosen word there, they've burned their ships. I'd love to just have a bit, how do you measure this conviction? Because that's the most difficult thing I find when it's pre-seed and also students slash PhD people. 
in our view, university investing has had the wrong focus for the last 10, 20 years, right? So primarily in Europe, the way university investing has looked is it's been focusing on the IP, the technology, and not really the founding team. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of money going into businesses coming out of European universities where you're saying, okay, look, I don't care if the professor is one day a week. I don't care if kind of everyone's, you know, sometimes you see the kind of like the team business, like 10% of this time, 5% of this person's time, 20% of this person's time. And then you add it up and you get to 100, but you be 100% (laughs) like 20 people, each of whom's done a little bit of their time. And that's kind of what university investings look like for the last 20 years. And the emphasis there has been, let's back great technology. And actually, if they don't manage to commercialize it, it's not the end of the world because we can license it out anyway. In our view, that's not the right way to approach it. What we say is, no, actually the founder, like we think they're like a brilliant technical person that also has like that kind of commercial DNA somewhere that we can help build into even more. That founder is very valuable and we'll back them as much as we're backing the technology. But with that, we expect them to be completely in this. So what does that look like? Number one, we don't back teams where it's a lot of professors, all of whom are going part-time. Somebody's got to be 100% in. Somebody's got to be worrying about this from dawn till dusk. Now, if there's a second co-founder that's 50-50 because they need access to the labs, okay. But the critical person who eats, dreams, sleeps, you know, from dawn till dusk about the start, they've got to be 100% full-time. And secondly, we want to know what they've sacrificed, right? So like these PhDs coming out of the AI program at Oxford, they've got a huge amount of opportunity, right? They could be at Facebook, they could be getting a very well-paid job, engineering job at a startup. We want to see like, what have they turned down? What do they put into this to convince us that this is the most important thing? And there's been an opportunity cost relative to the other things that they could have pursued. And honestly, you know, the profile of founder that we back most often is a top PhD where everyone around them you know, so for example, we backed this great vaccine company out of Oxford. Everybody around these PhDs were telling them, hey, go into Oxford, become a professor, get a great kind of room overlooking an old quad, <laughs> nice leather couch, we'll get you, you know, beautiful 14th century ideal of Oxford life, go and do that. And it's very, you know, prestigious and you publish and you've gone become an expert. And these guys said, no, we think we can have more impact by building a business. We're going to take this vaccine thinking out of the laboratory, actually go and build a real company out of this. For us, that is actually a really high risk, really like founder first decision to make because you're going against the grain of what people are telling you, telling you to build a business instead, and you're putting everything into that. We love that profile of founder. In our experience, that's been the most successful type of founder coming out of university. How do you think about assembling these teams? Because it's very typical that these very technical teams coming out of university have limited exposure to the business world, and thus they either lack that capability inside the team or lack the network to be able to tap someone to come into their team. How do you think about building these teams? So because we've got a network across all these universities, we're really good at getting that commercial person in. So maybe that might be, you know, we've got a company in Cambridge, which is PhD and postgrad in NLP. He's teamed up with an executive MBA from London Business School, and she spent 15 years working in industry before she went and joined this startup. So we're quite good at plugging talent in. But I think what we disagree with is the idea that you've got to step the PhD down and put somebody else in CEO. We think PhDs that have made this decision to build a business and are taking this kind of you know, iconoclastic path of leaving academia and building a business, actually, often they've got in their DNAs the ability to be a really effective CEO. And they also really love and understand the space. And we want someone with that expertise in charge. 
And so our viewers often bring in a VP commercial or bring in a commercial co-founder, but we're not swapping out management. We're building the team around that person and putting in the other people in place, which we can do through our network. Yeah, because I remember in the fund I was in, it was the constant issue that you had amazing tech, had an amazing founder, but then you could also see that we're going to lack commercial resources here. And then how do you plug it into the team? Because it's not a simple exercise to get someone who has the typical executive uh, experience and and, and qualities and get that person to accept that I'm going to be next to a technical person. And that person is actually the, you know, it's very difficult. It takes a special profile and it takes a lot of humility on both sides, knowing what they lack. I'd argue that it's easier than the other way around. It's easier than two commercial people that dream of building a business since they were young, but don't have anything technically brilliant behind what they're doing. We think it's more solvable to bring in the commercial person. Not for sure, for sure. I would say I hardly even think of the other as an option, right? <laughs> because <laughs> if there's not a product or a technology, there's nothing, right? Then there's just people who want to sell stuff and get rich. <laughs> I have another question and it goes together. I'd love to hear about your follow-on strategy. You just described how you think about first tickets, but then how much do you reserve and how do you think about ensuring that you can actually follow on? Your fund isn't massive and many of the businesses you're bagging are deep tech. And that means that follow-ons very quickly grow big. Absolutely. So a few things on that. Firstly, we're really thoughtful about the syndicates we put together. I mean, it's typically creative fund leading, but we've been backed by a large number of other VC funds or GPs of VC funds. And so like bringing in people that are going to be able to put in substantial capital over multiple rounds. The second thing that we've done, and it's actually like a different approach to other funds, but it's worked really well for us, is most of our LPs probably double their commitment with us through discretionary investments through our fund. So we say, put in a commitment into our fund, so the $20 million second fund. And so we'll do the next round as well as follow-on. So we'll typically do one round follow-on directly from the fund. But then it's Series A or Series B, or potentially the follow-on will have grown substantially. We'll go back to our LPs and say, we've worked with this company for the last two years. Here is a memo of what we've learned. Here's why we're recommending that you put in discretionary capital. And they will top up essentially through a SPV. We do it in a kind of British uh, tax efficient way, but essentially do an SPV for them to come in for more. And on every one of our follow on rounds in the last year, we've gone in for you know, a pretty substantial discretionary check as well as direct through the fund. And from a kind of LP experience or through a kind of what we're offering LPs, for them, it kind of means the best of both worlds, right? They kind of are in a fund and they get all the benefits from wide exposure and, you know, professional fund managers making decisions on their behalf. But also quite a lot of our LPs are pretty sophisticated investors and they like the ability to exercise discretion and increase their exposure to deals that they find really exciting. That's how we've done our follow-on strategy. And so far, it's resulted in very high LP loyalty for the fund. We are investing right now or closing our syndicate into Acrobatter, who's got a bit of the same strategy. So love that way of thinking. The, the only problem is the most stressful day of the job is when you've got a really good discretionary opportunity and you've got, you know, really trying to make everyone happy when there's a set amount of pie. That is every, you know, my most stressful day of the year, every year, day, year is that. Um, <laughs> so it's sometimes easier said than done, but we try yeah. our best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means that in effect, you don't have in your LPA a predetermined method to distribute the uh, follow-on rights between the discretionary vehicles? Yeah, so we do it pro rata, but the reality is we often are very good at getting much more than our pro rata. Uh, So, you know, we work really closely with our founders. So, you know, last year we invested in a company that's uh, creating electronic skin for robots. 
So allowing machines to touch and feel like human beings. Loved the company, went in really early. And then they did a large follow-on from Octopus. And because we'd worked so closely with the founder, I think he gave us about 5x pro rata in a pretty oversubscribed round. And so the initial investors have the right to do you know, their initial pro rata, but then there's the extra allocation. And that extra allocation, you don't distribute pro rata. We don't do it strictly pro rata, partly because it's really hard to do that, to make sure that everyone's getting very exact. Sh- I am sure that you're having some fun conversations with your <laughs> around that. That's like inviting everyone to the party and then deliberately make, making sure that you don't have room for the last five. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the, the reality is like what will happen is we'll say like, look, you know, we'll have five or six LPs that are robotics experts. Or yeah. we'll have, you know, it's a Scottish company and we'll know that some of our LPs, you know, really love Scottish deals. Yeah. And so we'll put everyone in for Parata and then we'll try and max the extra allocation in a way that most aligns, you know, people that have got expertise in the space or people that are really excited by the sector uh, and give them that extra allocation. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, plus, I guess they are more involved when you exactly. also, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the interesting thing, right, actually. When somebody makes a discretionary investment, it's actually, you know, still through us, but when someone makes a discretionary investment, they are just more kind of involved and more, you know, emotionally uh, tied to a company yeah. relative to when they go through the fund vehicle. And actually, you know, RLPs add a huge amount of value to our companies, especially when they've gone in a discretionary basis. When they go in a discretionary basis, do they typically go in with their own fund as well in that round? Or, you know, sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. It, it's a mix. It's, yeah. it's generally through us, but it's a, it's a mix. Yeah. Okay, so we just had a talk here about this whole point of you having very active investors in your LP base who are doing direct deals. I've referred to some of them as fund managers. Uh, that's because they are. Yeah. You have a very impressive list, so feel free to share whoever you, you're comfortable sharing. After having done so, I would love to ask you to reflect a bit on this constant discussion that's between TPs. Should we or should we not have later stage investors in our LP base? It's oftentimes a perfect strategic match, but it also comes with trade-offs. I'd love to hear your thinking. You know, we're really lucky. We've got a fantastic LP base. Broadly speaking, it's probably, you know, about 25% VC funds or GPs of VC funds. We've got really great GPs that come on on an individual basis. It's probably about 25% exited founders or current founders. We've got probably about 20% of fund of funds, family offices, you know, institutional investors. That's been a big change for us in terms of them joining us for the second fund and they've added a huge amount of value. And then individuals, professionals. And the other thing that we're really proud of is that we've got a number of our PhDs that have finished with us, gone on to VC roles or gone on to start their own companies and become LPs and create a fund. And we're a first LP commitment for them or first entry point into investing in their own right after they graduate. That kind of makes it up. You know, it can go into specifics in any of those groups about, about who's involved, but it's a really high quality list. In terms of the question about follow-on funds going into the LP base, for us, it's been fantastic. So we've probably got 10 VC funds or GPs of VC funds involved in Creator Fund. They invest both for the ROI of our fund and they also invest because they're later stage funds and you know they want to you know invest in our companies and see the deal flow of what we're seeing. And for us that's a win-win because for our companies, you know, they've got the ability to talk to high quality later stage funds with a strong introduction from us. And for our LPs, they're getting an additional benefit from being in Creator Fund. I think what's critical in doing that is making sure that nobody has preferential access. So there's not a sense that somebody's going to see something first before others. 
And obviously that would have signaling risk as well, right? You, you don't want that if somebody hasn't invested in one of your companies, others are asking, well, why didn't that happen? But as long as it's a level playing field and you're also showing the right companies to the right people when you know there's a kind of match, I think it works really well. I'm actually curious, Jamie. So correct me if I'm wrong. You're in fund two. Fund one was roughly five. Fund two is 20, 25, something like that, right? 20, yeah. 20. And so I think also part of this discussion is also driven about where do you see, you know, your own firm growing into the future, right? That's at least my experience. And I think some GPs have the view that they want to grow more multi-stage. And then, you know, maybe the SAPI base is less interesting. If you want to stay more stage focused, early stage focused, it's more interesting. I'd love to hear reflections on that for Creator Fund specifically. Yeah, can I ask a question back first? Because I was interested in the in the question you just asked me. You said, you know, a lot of people have been saying that it's bad to have later stage funds in the LP base. And I guess other than the preferential point, what's the reason that you've had from other fund managers about why it's a negative? It's that. And then some also say that you have this issue with independence in making your decisions, both from other LPs. So are you doing it because, you know, you're aligning yourself with the strategy there, meaning you have going masters or, or LPs bagging in the, the typical strategic LP question, right? Yeah. What's How do you actually manage that? And then right. there's the relationship towards the founders. So the founders go out and raise a second round. Who should they take money from? <laughs> that you know, You're helping them prep for that round. And then obviously... If you've got Molten, then you're probably not going to say, well, Molten, you know, they tend to not be that good in this vertical. (laughs) I've also heard a lot of the negative signaling value. So if you have, as an example, a fintech-focused later-stage investor, then you have a fintech firm that doesn't manage to raise from any of those. There is this conversation about, is that actually a negative signal in terms of the value? I think the two key things are uh, not having somebody's got preferential access over others and then just setting expectations really early that you make the introduction and then you know the conversation happens yeah. directly on a fund to founder level yeah but that's that's interesting we haven't had that but maybe maybe <laughs> maybe we're set in a couple of years and come back and yeah. but jamie you know we're building our syndicates and in our syndicates 20 30 or so percent of the people that are investing are gps and staff and vc firms if they're staff then they're doing it also because they're building network and so on and getting more embedded and learning from other funds yeah. but if it's gps they're of course doing it with the same intention as your lp so we have a quite strong stance on the value of it also from the gp side yeah. i've got to say as well actually like the other massive benefit for a young fund manager is like a lot of the GPs that have invested in Creator Fund have been like absolute like top mentors for me building Creator Fund. So like people like, you know, Chris Crisanthu at Kindred, Brent Hoberman at First Minute, Adrian Lloyd at uh, Episode One, like their LPs in Creator Fund. And like, honestly, they just give the best advice. You know, they also see everything, right? So they see all the LP communication from a fund and, and how it all works and just their, their like feedback and their like unvarnished perspective on, on what we're doing and what we can do better. Like it, it's the best advice as you can have as a fund manager. And there's obviously a lot of empathy from, you know, their shared experience. That's the other big benefit of it. That's our thinking exactly that, you know, it's about connecting the European ecosystem and that's how this can happen. Someone in Madrid wouldn't necessarily find Crater Fund, right? Yeah. <laughs> but now because of our syndicate, people will see it and then you might strike up a very, very good <laughs> a relationship with someone you would have never met, right? I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's the challenge and pivoting that to David's next question, that's the challenge for us next. I mean, the vision for Creator Fund is, you know, we want a top PhD founder from Madrid to Stockholm to Athens to Cambridge 
to meet a creator fund student investor first, for us to be the first check into that company and to help scale the next generation of great frontier businesses across Europe, across top tier institutions. The fund vision, but also the challenge that we're thinking about now is how do we take what's worked you know, very effectively in the UK to a smaller extent, you know, worked well in a pilot in Stockholm. How do we take that to scale that right across Europe? Because I think there's a real opportunity for that kind of deep tech leader yeah. across the European continent. Like you might have like a Lux Capital in the US. Like there's an opportunity for someone to build that in Europe. And we think we've got the model that can do it. And that's what we're kind of thinking about now. And that's what we like to call the MI6 model of the creative <laughs> fund. <laughs> can you deep dive into it? Yeah. Is there a Portuguese secret service? Do I need to come up with a different... <laughs> yes, but I can't reveal it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in it? That'd be cool. That'd be a cool double agent. Uh, a Portuguese secret <laughs> service and a podcaster. It's a good cover. <laughs> Plus, it's super easy being a podcaster. So, you know, any any MI6 secret service guy can do it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big Borgen fan at my favorite Danish show. And they talk a lot about the Danish secret service there. So I'm clued in yeah. on, is it PET, P-E-T? That's my new, yeah, I know yeah, about Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we actually, we have a great case going on right now with the former head of the PET agency who has been, they have wiretapped his whole house and listened to his conversations with his wife in bed. And it wow. seems to be something that maybe did not happen that much out of anything else than political reasons. <laughs> so we've got a great scandal coming up for an upcoming Borgen uh, episode. <laughs> what are the Danes? I mean, Denmark always feels like quite a stable thing. Why are they tapping? What's the Danish Secret Service that, whispering about now? <laughs> it, it's super weird. He's being prosecuted for having shared confidential material with journalists and his wife. Okay. And it's like anyone at that seniority level would have spoken to their wife about this. But their wife is also security. You know, you've got security right. players on her for a reason, right? <laughs> Everyone knows that you do that. Whatever he's spoken with the journalists about is something that was all out in the open to everyone already. So it's super dodgy what's going on. The lesson for VCs is if you sign an NDA, don't talk about it with your wife or husband back home because yeah. the Danish Secret Service might be finding yeah, out what's going on in that seed round. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Well, I, said, I like the segue into, into <laughs> but, um, our vision. It's, it's much less nefarious. So Creative Fund is not tapping anyone's rooms. But what we're, you know, our vision here is you know, we are training the next generation of brilliant investors, right? So we've got, there's been 90 people that have been through Creative Fund programs we are doing our fifth cohort right now. So we're recruiting our fifth generation of student investors. Those are brilliant, you know, PhDs and everything from cell signaling to robotics to oncology, uh, advanced uh, mathematics, applied physics. They go through the Creative Fund program and then they graduate and they either go and start their own company, which we want to back. They go and work for one of our portfolio companies. We've got people at senior roles across our portfolio companies. Or we help them get great roles in venture. And they're very attractive recruits for venture capitalists because they've spent two, three years with us so doing a huge volume of deals and understanding venture capital. And then they're real technical experts. So kind of changing the old model where, you know, maybe a lot of people going into venture in Europe were management consultants or people from investment banking. It's technical experts going into that. The MI6 thing, in a kind of positive force for good way, is that we've got credit fund people right across top tier funds around Europe. And so what that means is that they then also lead our companies, follow on rounds and lead the seed round, series A, series B round into our company. So we've just had a term sheet into one of our companies for the seed round. And that's being led by, you know, our lead creative fund two years ago. And that's the second time that's happened in the last six months. The vision is not just backing great founders across Europe, but also building the next generation of great investors across Europe. 
And so connecting across funds from Stockholm, Madrid to Cambridge, you know, the next generation of investors, next generation of founders, next generation of talent, and then Creative Fund becomes this platform that becomes like a flywheel, giving it momentum as we keep backing great uh, technology founders across universities and making sure that they've got the capital they need at follow-on rounds and talent. Jamie, you also used the MI6. <laughs> I regret this MI6, <laughs> this MI6 yeah. metaphor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. You also used that story when you explained how you scale from university to university because they asked you, how do you think about getting into a new university? Do you go through the administration and, and you know partner with the university or how do you do that? The way that we work is it's quite a capital light model for launching in a new city. So, you know, we've got somebody on the ground in Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow, Belfast, and the MI6 model where there was that, that's just a PhD at the university, you know, working with founders to get those companies backed and supporting people in the local ecosystem. So for Creative Fund to launch in a university, we just need a really high caliber, high quality person on the ground at that campus. Now, often we'll work with the institution as well. So we work very closely with universities like Cambridge, Imperial, work very closely with Edinburgh, Bristol. But actually, we don't have to, right? We can also just have a really smart student on the ground there, you know, working and starting to back great companies at CF. And so that's what we're going to be doing in October, putting people on the ground in critical European cities as we spread that network, you know, much further beyond the UK. Last time we spoke, you said, and I quote you here, seven out of 10 times we work with the universities. But when the universities don't set up the founders for success, we are the alternative to the TTOs. Absolutely. I'd love to just hear you dive a bit into this issue and where you think we stand in Europe and so on. I mean, so there is a massive range of university policy towards IP across Europe. The dividing line here typically is if you're a PhD student, you own most of your own IP. If you're a professor, the university owns the IP until you have a, a negotiation with them. And if you're a PhD and professor founding team, you're in a gray area in between. So if you were to take the extreme of what this looks like in a founder-friendly way, you'd look at somewhere like Sweden, which has a policy called professor's privilege, which means that if you are a university professor anywhere across Sweden, you own your IP. And that, I think, has been a major driving force why you see huge numbers of startups coming out of Swedish universities, but also big multinational companies working with Swedish universities on innovation, and also why so much international talent goes and studies at Sweden and gets professorial positions there. The other end of the extreme are universities that are taking 50-60% equity in return for giving the IP to the startup. I think there's a really happy medium in between. Like, actually, I don't think you should go to a position where it's 0%, but I think a university like Cambridge has got a really healthy policy of typically it's sub 10% and works really well with the founders. But I think it's a major problem that you've got these universities taking an equity position that suddenly shuts down so many doors for later on rounds, right? It makes so many, it shuts down any ability to go and raise a Series A fund from a top-tier mainstream VC fund that expects the founders to be on 50% equity pre-Series A if the university set the company up where they're not even at 50% pre-funding. You know, the university taking 50% pre-funding, model that out in terms of dilution. What are the founders going to be at Series A? And if you then say, well, actually, there's this all this potential, all this innovation at these universities that should be getting funded, should be getting follow-on VC rounds, you know, I've got a real objection to when universities do that and take that IP position. And so, you know, the creative fund model is, look, 
often co-invest with universities, often bring universities in. I actually think so many people work in tech transfer offices and work in VC funds across universities, maybe like Andreas launching the incubator in Denmark, that are absolute like superstars. That was not me. <laughs> that are playing a huge role in the success of the startups coming out of these universities. Like the people that we work with from these universities are, you know, absolute top tier performers that are, you know, probably when this company IPOs, the founder is going to be pointing back to that person that got them started at the university and saying that individual had more impact than most VCs funds we worked with. And they actually are over, you know, under celebrated in, in the story here. But at the other end of the extreme, there are tech transfer offices taking 50%, going in year long negotiations with founders, driving founders into the ground you know, with a James Bond metaphor, it's a bit like kind of when Goldfinger straps James Bond to like the gold laser beam and you're kind of sweating and torturing with a year negotiation, wondering what's going to end up at the end of it. Do you expect me to talk? I'm loving the metaphors. And, and that end of the extreme, there's got to be an alternative. There's got to be an alternative. And that's where I said, you know, create a fund side. Actually, on the PhD side, it's harder if it's professor, but PhD side, because they look, we'll invest early. We'll make it really quick. Let's get you a you know fair valuation negotiation that takes a month, not a year. And, you know, you can start this company outside that IP world and not make certain decisions that actually would have gone you down that IP journey where actually then the university by definition has an IP stake in the company. But at the early stages, you can do certain things that give you that flexibility. And, you know, we're going to set you up with a cap table that's going to make sure that you're going to be able to raise the follow-on capital you need. That's our kind of worldview of it. I feel like we could continue this conversation for easily an hour. I have like three yeah. topics top of mind that I'd love to discuss. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Okay. And we always like to end our episodes with a quick fire round. And the quick fire round, Jamie, is when we ask you two to three questions, 30 to 60 seconds answer each. Are you ready? So not that quick. I thought it was going to be like one word. Okay. <laughs> okay. We can do it like that. <laughs> right now they're choosing the next prime minister in the UK. And so they have quick fire rounds that no one's willing to answer a quick fire question. Jamie, show them how it's done. Okay. <laughs> First question is in deep tech and life sciences, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? Very bullish on drones. I think drones are an Amara's law type situation where they were over-egged three, four years ago. And they are now going to reach back more of an equilibrium of their potential. I think that it's very hard to see how we're going to transform logistics in places like healthcare without drones as an enabler of that. And actually, that's going to be our next investment at Creator Fund. I'm also very bullish on robotics and specifically Europe's potential to build world-leading robotics companies. I think sometimes we all look east for South Korea and Japan. We think some of the most exciting things in the space are happening in Europe, especially enabling software that's going to power the next generation of robots. Second question, Jamie, what are your top tips for emerging VCs around Europe who are probably now fundraising in these current uh, market that we have? I think transparency, like don't oversell. LPs want to understand the mistakes that you've made. Like as a fund manager, you're making lots and lots of decisions every day. And bad fund managers are the ones that have decision paralysis and don't decide. And so with the high volume of decisions you make as a fund manager, by definition, you'll be making mistakes. And I think articulating the mistakes you've made and what you've learned from them and why uh, is really powerful for LPs. I'd say the second thing is differentiate. I think it's there are way too many generic funds that have very similar strategies to others. What's exciting for LPs and founders, but also for the ecosystem, is where you've got a really differentiated POV, a differentiated focus, but also I'd stress a differentiated model. How can you shake up the typical way sourcing happens or the typical ways deals are done to offer a differentiated property in the market? Those would be my two tips.
final question, which we have kind of talked about, but I always like to end it with this, which is what can we expect in the future from Jamie? Much more exciting than from Jamie is from Creator Fund. <laughs> and from Creator Fund, I think in the next two years, you're going to see across European universities a fund in the laboratory, in classrooms, being that partner that the absolute top 1% talent leaders in their field need to build scalable technology businesses. And that's going to have a game-changing impact on how universities create startups and you know the technology leaders across the European landscape. That is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Jamie. We had a lot of fun. We should have done this for a much longer time. So sorry for only talking with you for now. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And not often that you get to start your day talking about uh, James Bond. So it's a win-win. I've been imagining this recording with the editing with that sound. I can do a graphic for you of me pointing the gun at you. Please do. Please take a picture with a gun. <laughs> pointing. Do it on TikTok. It's very, very timely given everything that's happening in Europe. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.